Oh. <laughs> oh boy, in my recording, I two things. I don't have a green screen. That'll be fun. Uh, I guess I should give my traditional, hey, hello, wonderful people. Welcome back to Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam, and everything's weird today. Um, there is, in fact, still a Christmas tree all up in the business there. That shouldn't be there. I hope y'all are doing really well. Um, if y'all are keeping track of the YouTube stuff, you, you'll you see up there why, um, you know, some of the stuff is going weird. It's, uh, or I should say why we're doing things a little differently today, mostly related to uh, some issues with the channel. And uh, I am, I'm looking to branch out. So uh, y'all may find me doing some, some, uh, some additional wild stuff uh, in the future, including next week, um, I am going to start on Twitch as well. This is going to be in addition to the regular stuff. Um, I know for sure, unless something pretty drastic happens, y'all are still going to be able to hear um, Harry Potter here on Discord. For sure, I am looking into uh, my my additional options for, you know, like what, what I'm going to be able to do on YouTube, etc. for Harry Potter. You can find it here. But then I'm also going to do some some uh, some other stuff. I'm going to do some other stuff. Um, if y'all are familiar with a game called Disco Elysium, um, I'm looking into trying that out. So uh, I've I've uh, I've got some 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 testing to do before I actually jump in with both feet. But uh, next week, check it out. Let's get into let's get into some huh? I'm doing some stuff. Uh, next week I am, uh, nope, I'm off my train of thought. Okay, let's talk review, shall we? Chapter 23. This was Christmas in the Closed Ward. We got, um, maybe a little bit more information, uh, than we thought we would about our boy, Neville Longbottom. Um, and we actually reconnected with, I was going to call him an old friend, but I definitely don't think... That's the title we should give him. Uh, an old acquaintance, somebody we knew from before. There is uh, there's there's an old face. It is former Professor Lockhart, and he is uh, still in a, a pretty confused condition. We don't know uh, exactly what his life has been like, but we get the sense that he hasn't changed much since we very last left off with him. Um, he is now a full-time patient at St. Mungo's, uh, I almost said hospital, uh, excuse me, I almost said school for <laughs> magical maladies, um, but he is a, he is a full-time resident at the hospital now, at St. Mungo's. Um, the, 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 the memory jinx charm, I don't remember exactly which it was, uh, that he accidentally backfired upon himself. He was intending to, uh, to clear the memories of Ron and Harry, um, but uh, it backfired because Ron's wand, which he had stolen, was all janked up. So it backfired, and he ends up losing all of his memories. Um, it seems that he is slowly regaining them, starting with, of course, the uh, the really rampant self-centeredness and uh, conceitedness. He is uh, he's still all of those things. But he at least, you know, seems to be on good terms with the, uh, with uh, Harry, Ron, and Hermione when they show their faces in there. So, 
um, they they they're they're sort of they're wandering around the hospital. It seems that uh, Mr. Weasley, after the attack, um, the attack that Harry saw through his strange and uh, as of right now, pretty pretty un uh, pretty misunderstood um, set of visions. This attack, uh, Arthur Weasley is recovering pretty well. They can't quite get the wound to stop bleeding. It seems that the the snake that attacked him was in fact poisonous somehow. Uh, I should say venomous. Excuse me. Before any of y'all call me out for that one, it appears that the snake was indeed venomous. Uh, but he's recovering pretty well, <laughs> uh, even though um, Mrs. Weasley is. Perhaps not a fan of the idea of using some additional traditional muggle medicine uh, along with the, the magical healing process. She's not pleased about that. It's weird. It's weird. I'm, I'm using new new earbuds and, you know, the recording situation is different. It, it feels much more quiet for some reason. The whole thing does. So it's odd. But, um, after, uh, after fleeing the hospital room to uh, avoid being caught up in Mrs. Weasley's wrath, um, they find their way down to the, um, the, the sort of long-term patient's ward, and they find, first of all, um, uh, the, the professor himself, uh, Lockhart, they interact with him briefly, and then they meet, um, Neville and Neville's grandmother. We've seen Neville's grandmother before. I don't know that we've actually really met her before, um, but they are—they're uh, there visiting Neville's parents. Now, Harry knows a little bit about Neville's parents. Um, he knows that they were attacked and tortured by um, Bellatrix Lestrange, but the uh, the visit is apparently something that they do pretty regularly. And we, we really get a picture of kind of where Neville comes from, what his life is like. He, it's easy to look at him as kind of a, a bumbling, sort of poor student. Um, but we, we really get a picture now of what his life is like when he, uh, you know, when he comes to school, where is he coming from? And it's from, you know, an upbringing with parents that he can't really interact with. Um, as far as we can tell, they don't even speak. I don't think we really see um, his father at all. We only see his mother, and his mother uh, wanders over and gives him um, an old chewing gum wrapper. It seems like it seems like uh, he's been getting a lot of these. It seems like these. This is a gift that he gets from his mother regularly, and his mother doesn't speak. It seems that she is. Uh, fully, uh, somehow, she she is impaired um, after after uh, her experience uh, at the hands of Bellatrix Lestrange and her compatriots. But after giving a lot of these these uh, chewing gum wrappers to Neville, it seems he still keeps them. Sarah Liana says, this scene with Neville's mom makes me tear up a bit. And yeah, it is a, it is a pretty harsh scene. If you, if you, you know, think about what Neville's life has been like and what, you know, what it must have been like at home with a, a grandmother who's, she seems to be, um, effective and she, she is, uh, a, 
a very confident woman, but she is also, you know, perhaps not the most caring or understanding. And I think Neville probably needs a lot of understanding in the situation that he's in. I'm not even live and I'm skipping frames right now. Oh boy. You know what? Whatever. We're just rolling with it. I, uh... I determined before I started today, I am, I'm not going to get frustrated. So I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I don't always get to make the choice, but today, today I did. Today I'm choosing it. Okay. Let's see. Sarah is recovering from the flu. <laughs> I hope this, uh, hope this gives you a chance to recover calmly. I'm seeing Rachel. Ah, Rachel has changed, <laughs> changed, uh, changed the name up. I like it because it includes an emoji clown somehow, which I've never seen that before. I had a great day. Got to skip a Spanish test I've been dreading. <laughs> uh, by devious means or otherwise? Is this, uh, is this an instance of mischief managed? Sasha Money, the stream is right now times. It's right now o'clock. We're doing it right now. Welcome. We're here. Although I actually don't know if you're in the, uh, Ooh, yeah. Let's see. You are not in the, the, uh, audio channel. So let's get you in here. It's good to see y'all in here today. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, the patience. I, you know, channels had some, some, uh, interesting issues in the past, hasn't it? Um, <laughs> but y'all have done a, a great job sticking with me and I very much appreciate it. Instead of Grand Man is at work for another five hours. Looking forward to another chapter tonight. Fantastic. All right. It is 20 after the top of the hour, so we are going to get started. If that's all right with you. We're going to get started on this, the wildest, wonkiest, scream-go-wonky episode of Sidecar Stories there has ever been. That's probably not true. <laughs> there have probably been worse. Let's do this. Chapter 24. Occlumency. Creature, it transpired, had been lurking in the attic. Sirius said he had found him up there, covered in dust, no doubt looking for more relics of the Black family to hide in his cupboard. Though Sirius seemed satisfied with his story, it made Harry uneasy. Creature seemed to be in a better mood on his reappearance. His bitter muttering had subsided somewhat, and he submitted to orders more docilely than usual. Though once or twice Harry caught the house elf staring at him avidly, but always quickly looking away whenever he saw that Harry had noticed. Harry did not mention his vague suspicions to Sirius, whose cheerfulness was evaporating fast now that Christmas was over. As the date of their departure back to Hogwarts grew nearer, he became more and more prone to what Mrs. Weasley called fits of the sullens, in which he would become taciturn and grumpy, often withdrawing to Buckbeak's room for hours at a time. His gloom seeped through the house, oozing under doorways like some noxious gas so that all of them became infected by it. Harry didn't want to leave Sirius again with only Creature for company. In fact, for the first time in his life, 
he was not looking forward to returning to Hogwarts. Going back to school would mean placing himself once again under the tyranny of Dolores Umbridge, who had no doubt managed to force through another dozen decrees, who had no doubt managed to force through another dozen decrees in their absence. There was no Quidditch to look forward to now that he had been banned, and there was every likelihood that their burden of homework would increase as the exams drew even nearer. And Dumbledore remained as remote as ever. In fact, if it hadn't been for the DA, Harry thought he might have begged Sirius to leave him to let him leave Hogwarts and remain in Grimald Place. Then, on the very last day of the holidays, something happened that made Harry positively dread his return to school. Howdy, dear, said Mrs. Weasley, poking her head into his and Ron's bedroom, where the pair of them were playing wizard chess, watched by Hermione, Ginny, and Crookshanks. Could you come down to the kitchen? Professor Snape would like a word with you. Harry did not immediately register what she had said. One of his castles was engaged in a violent tussle with a pawn of Ron's, and he was egging it on enthusiastically. Squish him! Squish him! He's only a pawn, you idiot! Sorry, Mrs. Weasley, what did you say? Professor Snape, dear, he's in the kitchen! He'd like a word! Harry's mouth fell open in horror. He looked around at Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, all of whom were gaping back at him. Crookshanks, whom Hermione had been restraining with difficulty for the past quarter of an hour, leapt gleefully onto the board and set the pieces running for cover, squealing at the top of their voices. Snape? said Harry blankly. Professor Snape, dear, said Mrs. Weasley reprovingly. Now come on, quickly. He says he can't stay very long. What does he want with you? said Ron looking unnerved as Mrs. Weasley withdrew from the room. "'You haven't done anything, have you?' "'No,' said Harry indignantly, racking his brains to think what he could have done to make Sirius... Hmm? to make Snape persuade... Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Racking his brains to think what he could have done that could make Snape pursue him to Grimald Place. Had his last piece of homework perhaps earned a tea? A minute or two later, he pushed open the kitchen door to find Sirius and Snape both seated at the long kitchen table, glaring in opposite directions. The silence between them was heavy with mutual dislike. A letter lay open on the table in front of Sirius. Ah, uh, said Harry, to announce his presence. Snape looked around at him, his face framed between curtains of greasy black hair. Sit down, Potter. You know, said Sirius loudly, leaning back in his chair and speaking to the ceiling, I think I'd prefer it if you didn't give orders around here, Snape. It's my house, you see. An ugly flush suffused Snape's pallid face. Harry sat down in a chair beside Sirius, facing Snape across the table. I was supposed to see you alone, Potter, said Snape, the familiar sneer curling his mouth. But black. I'm his godfather, said Sirius, louder than ever. I am here on Dumbledore's orders, said Snape, whose voice, by contrast, was becoming more and more quietly waspish. But by all means, black, stay. 
I know you like to feel involved. What's that supposed to mean? Said Sirius, letting his hair, letting his chair fall back on all four legs with a loud bang. Merely that I'm sure you must feel mm, frustrated by the fact that you can do nothing useful. Snape laid a delicate stress on the last word for the order. It was Sirius's turn to flush. Snape's lip curled in triumph as he turned to Harry. The headmaster has sent me to tell you, Potter, that it is his wish for you to study occlumency this term. Study what? said Harry blankly. Snape's sneer became more pronounced. Occlumency, Potter. The magical defense of the mind against external penetration. An obscure branch of magic, but highly useful one. Harry's heart began to pump very fast indeed. Defense against external penetration? But he was not being possessed. They had all agreed on that. Why do I have to study occult thing? He blurted out. Because the headmaster thinks that it's a good idea said Snape smoothly. You will receive private lessons once a week, but you will tell nobody what you're doing, least of all Dolores Umbridge, do you understand? Yes, said Harry. Who's going to be teaching me? Snape raised an eyebrow. I am, he said. Harry had the horrible sensation that his insides were melting. Extra lessons with Snape. What on earth had he done to deserve this? He looked quickly around at Sirius for support. Why can't Dumbledore teach Harry? Asked Sirius aggressively. Why you? I suppose because it is a headmaster's privilege to delegate less enjoyable tasks, said Snape silkily. I assure you, I did not beg for the job. He got to his feet. I will expect you at six o'clock on Monday evening, Potter, my office. If anyone asks, you are, st you are studying remedial potions. Nobody who has seen you in my classes could deny that you need them. He turned to leave, his black traveling cloak billowing behind him. Wait a moment, said Sirius, sitting up straighter in his chair. Snape turned back to face them, sneering. I am in rather a hurry, Black. Unlike you, I do not have unlimited leisure time. I'll get to the point, then, said Sirius, standing up. He was rather taller than Snape, who, Harry noticed, balled his fist into the pocket of his cloak over what Harry was sure was the handle of his wand. If I hear you're using these occlumency lessons to give Harry a hard time, you'll have me to answer to. How touching, Snape sneered, but surely you've noticed that Potter is very like his father. Yes, I have, said Sirius proudly. Well, then you'll know that he's so arrogant that criticism simply bounces off him, Snape said sleekly. Sirius pushed his chair roughly aside and strode around the table towards Snape, pulling out his wand as he went. Snape whipped out his own. They were staring, 
squaring up at each other, Sirius looking livid, Snape calculating, his eyes darting from Sirius's wand tip to his face. Sirius, said Harry loudly, but Snape, but Sirius appeared not to hear him. I've warned you, Snivellus, said Sirius, his face barely a foot from Snape's. I don't care if Dumbledore thinks you've reformed. I know better. Oh, but why don't you tell him so, whispered Snape. Or are you afraid he might not take very seriously the advice of a man who's been in hiding in his mother's house for six months? Tell me, how's Lucius Malfoy these days? I expect he's delighted that his lapdog is working at Hogwarts, isn't he? Speaking of dogs, said Snape softly, did you know that Sirius... Did you know that Lucius Malfoy recognized you last time you risked a little jaunt outside? Clever idea, Black, getting yourself seen in a safe station platform. Gave you a cast-iron excuse not to leave your hidey-hole in the future, didn't it? Sirius raised his wand. No! Harry yelled, vaulting over the table and trying to get in between them. Sirius, don't! Are you calling me a coward? roared Sirius, trying to push Harry out of the way, but Harry would not budge. Why, yes, I suppose I am, said Snape. Harry, get out of the way, snarled Sirius, pushing him aside with his free hand. The kitchen door opened and the entire Weasley family, plus Hermione, came inside, all looking very happy, with Mr. Weasley walking proudly into their midst, dressed in a pair of striped pajamas covered by a Macintosh. I'm cured, he announced brightly, to the kitchen at large. Completely cured. He and all the other Weasleys froze on the threshold, gazing at the scene in front of them, which was also suspended in mid-action, both Sirius and Snape looking toward the door with their wands pointed at each other's faces, and Harry immobile between them, a hand stretched out to each, trying to force them apart. Merlin's beard, said Mr. Weasley, the smile sliding off his face. What's going on here? Both Sirius and Snape lowered their wands. Harry looked from one to the other. Each wore an expression of utmost contempt, yet the unexpected entrance of so many witnesses seemed to have brought them back to their senses. Snape pocketed his wand, turned on his heel, and swept back across the kitchen, passing the Weasleys without comment. At the door, he looked back. Six o'clock Monday evening, Potter. And he was gone. Sirius glared after him, his wand at his side. What's been going on? asked Mr. Weasley again. Nothing, Arthur, said Sirius, who was breathing heavily, as though he, as though he had just run a long distance. Just a friendly little chat between old school friends. With what looked like an enormous effort, he smiled. So, you're cured. That's great news. Really great. Yes, isn't it? said Mrs. Weasley, leading her husband forward to a chair. Elis Methwick worked his magic in the end. He found an antidote to whatever the snake's got in its fangs, and... Arthur here has learned his lesson about dabbling in muggle medicine, haven't you, dear? She added, rather menacingly. Uh, yes, Molly, dear, 
said Mr. Weasley meekly. That night's meal should have been a cheerful one, with Mr. Weasley back amongst them. Harry could tell Sirius was trying to make it so, yet when his godfather was not forcing himself to laugh loudly at Fred and George's jokes or offering everyone more food, his face fell back into a moody, brooding expression. Harry was separated from him by Mundungus and Mad-Eye, who had dropped in to offer Mr. Weasley their congratulations. He wanted to talk to Sirius, to tell him that he shouldn't listen to a word that Snape had said, that Snape was goading him deliberately, and that the rest of them didn't think that Sirius was a coward for doing as Dumbledore had told him, and remaining in Grimauld Place. But he had no opportunity to do so. And, eyeing the ugly look on Sirius's face, Harry wondered occasionally whether he would have dared to mention it even if he had the chance. Instead, he told Ron and Hermione under his voice about having to take occlumency lessons with Snape. Dumbledore wants you to stop having those dreams about Voldemort, said Hermione at once. Well, you won't be sorry not to have them anymore, will you? Ugh, extra lessons with Snape, said Ron, sounding aghast. Rather have the nightmares. They were to return to Hogwarts on the night bus the following day, escorted once again by Tonks and Lupin, both of whom were eating breakfast in the kitchen when Harry, Ron, and Hermione came down the next morning. The adults seemed to have been midway through a whispered conversation as Harry opened the door. All of them looked around hastily and fell silent. After a hurried breakfast, they all put on jackets and scarves against the chilly, gray January morning. Harry had an unpleasant, constricting sensation in his chest. He didn't want to say goodbye to Sirius. He had a bad feeling about this parting. He didn't know when they would next see each other, and it felt it was incumbent upon him to say something to Sirius to stop him from doing anything stupid. Harry was worried that Snape's accusation of cowardice had stung Sirius so badly he might even now be planning some foolhardy trip beyond Grimald Place. Before he could think of what to say, however, Sirius had beckoned him to his side. "'I want you to take this,' he said quietly, thrusting a badly wrapped package roughly the size of a paperback book into Harry's hands. "'What is it?' Harry asked. "'A way of letting me know if Snape is giving you a hard time. "'No, no, don't open it here,' said Sirius, with a wary look at Mrs. Weasley, who was trying to persuade the twins to wear hand-knitted mittens. "'I doubt that Molly would approve. "'But I want you to use it if you need me, all right?' "'Okay,' said Harry, stowing the package away in the inside pocket of his jacket. "'But he knew he would never use whatever it was.' It would not be he, Harry, who lured Sirius from his place of safety, no matter how foully Snape treated him in their forthcoming occlumency lessons. Well, let's go then, said Sirius, clapping Harry on the shoulder and smiling grimly. And before Harry could say anything else... Oh, sorry about that. And before Harry could say anything else, they were headed upstairs, stopping before the heavily chained and bolted front door, surrounded by the Weasleys. "'Goodbye, Harry. Take care,' said Mrs. Weasley, hugging him. "'See you, Harry. Keep an eye out for snakes for me,' said Mr. Weasley genially, shaking his hand. "'Right. Yeah,' said Harry distractedly. It was his last chance to tell Sirius to be careful. He turned 
looked into his godfather's face, and opened his mouth to speak, but before he could do so, Sirius was giving him a brief, one-armed hug, and saying gruffly, Look after yourself, Harry. Next moment, Harry found himself being shunted into the icy winter air, with Tonks, today heavily disguised as a tall, tweedy woman with iron-gray hair, chivying them down along the steps. The door of number 12 slammed shut behind them. They followed Lupin down the front steps. As he reached the pavement, Harry looked round. Number 12 was shrinking rapidly as those on either side of it stretched sideways, squeezing it out of sight. One blink later, it had gone. I don't know if y'all can hear the dog having a panic attack outside. It sounds like a squeaky toy. Come on. The quicker we get on the bus, the better, said Tonks, sounding particularly... <laughs> sounding very, very cockney today. Come on. The quicker we get on the bus, the better, said Tonks, and... Harry thought that there was nervousness in the glance that she threw around the square. Lupin flung out his right arm. Bang! A violently purple, triple-decker bus had appeared out of thin air in front of them, narrowly avoiding the nearest lamppost, which jumped backwards out of its way. A thin, pimply, jug-eared youth in a purple uniform leapt down to the pavement and said, Welcome to the... Yes, yeah, we know, thank you said Tonks swiftly. Come on, on you get. And she shoved Harry forward toward the steps, past the conductor, who goggled at Harry as he passed. Here is Harry. If you shout his name, I will curse you into oblivion, muttered Tonks menacingly, now shunting, uh, now shunting Ginny and Hermione forward. I've always wanted to go on this thing, said Ron happily joining Harry on board and looking around. It had been evening the last time Harry had traveled by the night bus, and its three decks had been full of brass bedsteads. Now, in the early morning, it was crammed with an assortment of mismatched chairs grouped haphazardly around the windows. Some of these appeared to have fallen over while the bus stopped abruptly in Grimald Place. A few witches and wizards were still getting to their feet, grumbling, and somebody's shopping bag had slid the length of the bus. An unpleasant mixture of frog spawn, cockroaches, and custard creams was scattered all over the floor. It looks like we'll have to split up, said Tonks briskly, looking around for empty chairs. Fred, George, and Ginny, if you just take those seats back in the back. Remus, you can stay with them. She, Harry, Ron, and Hermione proceeded up to the very top deck, where there were two unoccupied chairs at the front end of the bus and two at the back. Stan Shunpike, the conductor, followed Harry and Ron eagerly to the back. Heads turned as Harry passed, and, when he at last sat down, he saw that all the faces were flicking to the front again. As Harry and Ron handed Stan... 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 Stan Stunpike. As Harry and Ron handed Stan eleven sickles each, the bus set off again, swaying ominously. It rumbled alone around Grimald Place, weaving on and off of the pavement. Then, with another tremendous bang, they were all flung backwards. Ron's chair toppled over, and Pigwidgeon, who had been on his lap, burst out of the cage and flew twitteringly... Uh, flew... 
I was going to say that's not a real word, flew twittering wildly up to the front of the bus, where he fluttered down onto Hermione's shoulder instead. Harry, who had narrowly avoided falling by seizing a candle racket, looked out of the window. They were now speeding down what appeared to be a motorway. Just outside of Birmingham, Lord, I don't know. I don't know where this stuff comes from. It just appears in my head. And it's like, well, that's the words. Go ahead, Birminghamton. It's not a real place, and it's not what the words are on the page. I don't know why it keeps popping up. Uh, it's because I it's because I forgot what my Stan Shunpike voice was precisely, and so now I'm 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 muddling with it. Just outside Birmingham, said Stan happily. Answering Harry's unasked question as Ron struggled to get up from the floor. You keeping well then, Harry? I've seen your name in the paper loads over the summer, but it weren't never nothing very nice. I said there were, and I said it didn't seem like a nutter when we met him. Just goes to show, didn't it? He handed over the tickets and continued to gaze enthralled at Harry. Apparently, Stan did not care how nutty somebody was if they were famous enough to be in the paper. The night bus swayed alarmingly, overtaking a line of cars on the inside. Looking toward the front of the bus, Harry saw Hermione cover her eyes with her hands, Pigwidgeon swaying happily on her shoulder. Bang! Chairs slid backward again as the night bus jumped from the Birmingham motorway to a quiet country lane full of hairpin bends. Hedgerows on either side of the road were leaping out of their way as they mounted the verges. From here, they moved to a main street in the middle of a busy town then to a viaduct surrounded by tall hills, then to a windswept road between high-rise flats, each time with a loud bang. Oh, I've changed my minds, muttered Ron, picking himself up from the floor for a sixth time. I never want to ride on this thing again. Listen, it's Hogwarts stop after this, said Stan brightly, swaying toward them. The bossy woman up in the front is... Giving us a little tip to move you up the queue. We're just going to let Madame Marsh off first, though. There was more retching from downstairs, followed by a horrible splattering sound. She's not feeling her best. A few minutes later, the night bus screeched to a halt outside a small pub, which squeezed itself out of the way to avoid a collision. They could hear Stan ushering the unfortunate Madame Marsh off of the bus with the relieved mutterings of her fellow passengers on the second deck. The bus moved on again, gathering speed until... BANG! They were rolling through a snowy hogsmeade. Harry caught a glimpse of the hog's head down the side street, the severed boar's head sign creaking in the wintry wind. Flecks of snow hit the large window at the front of the bus. At last... They rolled to a halt outside the gates to Hogwarts. Lupin and Tonks helped them off of the bus with their luggage, then got off to say goodbye. Harry glanced up at the three decks of the night bus and saw all the passengers staring down at them, noses flat against the windows. You'll be safe once you're on the grounds, said Tonks, casting a careful eye around at the deserted road. Have a good term, okay? Look after yourselves, said Lupin, shaking hands all round and reaching Harry last. And listen. He lowered his voice while the rest of them exchanged last-minute goodbyes with Tonks. Harry, 
I know you don't like Snape, but he is a superb Oklamans, and we all, Sirius included, want you to learn how to protect yourself. So work hard, all right? Yeah, all right, said Harry heavily, looking up into Lupin's prematurely lined face. I'll see you then. The six of them struggled up the slippery drive toward the castle, dragging their trunks. Hermione was already talking about knitting a few elf hats before bedtime. Harry glanced back when he reached the oaken front doors. The night bus had already gone, and he half-wished, given what was coming the following evening, that he was still on board. Harry spent most of the next day dreading the evening. His morning double potions lesson did nothing to dispel his trepidation, as Snape was as unpleasant as ever. His mood was further lowered by the DA members constantly approaching him in corridors between classes, asking hopefully if there would be another meeting that night. I'll let you know in the usual way when the next one is, Harry said over and over again, but I can't do it tonight. I've got... remedial potions. You take remedial potions? asked Zacharias Smith superciliously, having cornered Harry in entrance hall after lunch. Good lord, you must be terrible. Snape doesn't usually give extra lessons, does he? As Smith strode away in an annoyingly buoyant fashion, Ron glared after him. Shall I jinx him? I could still get him from here, he said, raising his wand and taking aim between Smith's shoulder blades. Oh, forget it, said Harry dismally. It's what everyone's going to think, isn't it? That I'm really stu- Hello, Harry, said a voice behind him. He turned round and found Cho standing there. Oh, said Harry, and his stomach leapt uncomfortably. Hi. We'll be in the library, Harry, said Hermione firmly as she seized Ron above the elbow and dragged him off toward the marble staircase. Did you have a good Christmas? asked Cho. Yeah, not bad, said Harry. Mine was pretty quiet, said Cho. For some reason, she was looking rather embarrassed. Um, there's another Hogsmeade trip next month. Did you see the notice? What? Oh, no, I haven't checked the notice board since I got back. Yes, it's, it's on Valentine's Day. Right, said Harry, wondering why she was telling him this. Well, I suppose you want to. Only if you do, she said eagerly. Harry stared. He had been about to say, I suppose you want to know when the next DA meeting is, but her response didn't seem to fit. I, uh, he said. It's okay if you don't, she said, looking mortified. Don't worry, I'll, I'll see you, I'll see you around. She walked away. Harry stood looking after her, his brain working frantically. Then something clunked into place. Cho! Hey! Cho! He ran after her, catching her halfway up the marble staircase. Uh, do you want to come into Hogsmeade with me on Valentine's Day? Oh, yes, she said, blushing crimson and beaming at him. Right. Well, that's settled then said Harry. 
and feeling that the day was not going to be a complete loss after all, he headed off to the library to pick up Ron and Hermione after their afternoon lessons, walking in a rather bouncy way himself. By six o'clock that evening, however, even the glow of having successfully asked about Cho Chang, having successfully asked out Cho Chang, could not lighten the ominous feeling that intensified with every step that Harry took towards Snape's office. He paused outside the door, and when he reached it, wishing he were almost anywhere else, oh, he paused outside the door when he reached it, wishing he were almost anywhere else. Then, taking a deep breath, he knocked and entered. The shadowy room was lined with shelves bearing hundreds of glass jars in which slimy bits of animals and plants were suspended in various colored potions. In one corner stood a cupboard filled with ingredients that Snape had once accused Harry, not without reason, of robbing. Harry's attention was drawn toward Snape's desk, however, where a shallow stone basin engraved with runes and symbols lay in a pool of candlelight. Harry recognized it at once. It was Dumbledore's pensive. Wondering what on earth it was doing there, he jumped when Snape's cold voice came out of the shadows. Shut the door behind you, Potter. Harry did as he was told, with the horrible feeling that he was imprisoning himself. When he turned back into the room, Snape had moved into the light and was pointing silently at the chair opposite his desk. Harry sat down, and so did Snape, his cold black eyes fixed unblinkingly upon Harry, dislike etched in every line of his face. "'Well, Potter, you know why you're here,' he said. "'The headmaster has asked me to teach you occlumency. "'I can only hope that you prove more adept at it than potions.' "'Right,' said Harry tersely. "'This may not be an ordinary class, Potter,' said Snape, "'his eyes narrowed malevolently. "'But I am still your teacher, and you will therefore call me sir or professor at all times.' "'Yes, sir,' said Harry. "'Snape continued to survey him through narrowed eyes for a moment, then said, "'Now, Occlumency, as I told you back in your dear godfather's kitchen,' This branch of magic seals the mind against magical intrusions and influence. And why does Professor Dumbledore think I need it, sir? said Harry, looking directly into Snape's eyes and wondering whether Snape would answer. Snape looked back at him for a moment and then said contemptuously, Surely even you could have worked that out by now, Potter. The Dark Lord is highly skilled at legitimacy. What's that, sir? It is the ability to extract feelings and memories from another person's mind. He can read minds? said Harry quickly. His worst fears consumed. Nope. His worst fears confirmed. You have no subtlety, Potter, said Snape, his dark eyes glittering. You do not understand fine distinctions. It is one of the shortcomings that makes you such a lamentable potion-maker. 
Snape paused for a moment, apparently to savor the pleasure of insulting Harry, before continuing. Only muggles talk of mind-reading. The mind is not a book to be opened at will and examined at leisure. Thoughts are not etched on the inside of skulls to be perused by any invader. The mind is a complex and many-layered thing, Potter, or at least most minds are... He smirked. It is true, however, that those who have mastered legitimacy are able, under certain conditions, to delve into the minds of their victims and to interpret their findings correctly. The Dark Lord, for instance, almost always knows when someone is lying to him. Only those skilled at occlumency are able to shut down those feelings and memories that contradict the lie, and so can utter falsehoods in his presence without detection. Whatever Snape said, legitimacy sounded like mind-reading to Harry, and he didn't like the sound of it at all. So he could know what we're thinking right now, sir. The Dark Lord is at a considerable distance, and the walls and grounds of Hogwarts are guarded with many ancient spells and charms to ensure the bodily and mental safety of those who dwell within them, said Snape. Time and space matter in magic, Potter. Eye contact is often essential to legitimacy. Well, then, why do I have to learn occlumency? Snape eyed Harry, tracing his mouth with one long, thin finger as he did so. The usual rules do not seem to apply with you, Potter. The curse that failed to kill you seems to have forged some kind of connection between you and the Dark Lord. The evidence suggests that at times, when your mind is most relaxed and vulnerable, when you are asleep, for instance, you are sharing the Dark Lord's thoughts and emotions. The Headmaster thinks it inadvisable for this to continue. He wishes for me to teach you how to close your mind to the Dark Lord. Harry's heart was pumping fast again. None of this added up. But why does Professor Dumbledore want to stop it? He said abruptly. I don't like it much, but it's been useful, hasn't it? I mean, I saw that snake attack Mr. Weasley, and if I hadn't, Professor Dumbledore wouldn't have been able to save him, would he? Sir. Snape stared at Harry for a few moments, still tracing his mouth with his finger. Then he spoke again, and it was slowly and deliberately as though he weighed every word. It appears that the Dark Lord has been unaware of the connection between you and himself until very recently. Up until now it seems that you have been experiencing his emotions and sharing his thoughts without being any wiser, without his being any the wiser. However, the vision that you had shortly before Christmas. The one with the snake and Mr. Weasley? Do not interrupt me, Potter, said Snape in a dangerous voice, as I was saying. The vision that you had shortly before Christmas represents such a powerful incursion upon the Dark Lord's thoughts. I saw inside the snake's head, not his. I thought I'd just told you not to interrupt me, Potter. But Harry did not care if Snape was angry. 
At last, he seemed to be getting to the bottom of this business. He moved forward in his chair, so that without realizing it, he was perched on the very edge, tense as though poised for flight. How come I saw through the snake's eyes if it's a Voldemort, if it's Voldemort's thoughts that I'm sharing? Do not say the Dark Lord's name, spat Snape. There was a nasty silence. They glared at each other across the pensive. Professor Dumbledore says his name, said Harry quietly. Dumbledore is an extremely powerful wizard, Snape muttered. While he may feel secure enough to use the name, the rest of us... He rubbed his left forearm, apparently unconsciously, on the spot where Harry knew the dark mark was burned into his skin. I just wanted to know, Harry began again, forcing his voice back into politeness. Why? You seem to have visited the snake's mind because that is where the Dark Lord was at that particular moment, snarled Snape. He was possessing the snake at the time, and so you dreamed that you were inside it too. And though he realized that I was there. It seems so, said Snape coolly. How do you know? said Harry urgently. Is this just Professor Dumbledore guessing, or... I told you, said Snape, rigid in his chair, his eyes slits, to call me sir. Yes, sir, said Harry impatiently, but how do you know? It is enough that we know, said Snape repressively. The important thing is that the Dark Lord is now aware that you have gained access to his thoughts and feelings. He may also deduce that the process is likely to work in reverse, that is to say, he has realized that he might be able to access your thoughts and feelings in return. And he might try to make me do things? asked Harry. Sir? he added quickly. He might, said Snape, sounding cold and unconcerned, which brings us back to Oclamancy. Harry pulled out his wand from the inside pocket of his robes. Hmm? I think I said that wrong. Snape pulled out his wand from an inside pocket of his robes, and Harry tensed in his chair, but Snape merely raised the wand to his temple, placed the tip of it into the greasy roots of his hair. When he withdrew it, some silvery substance came away, stretching from temple to wand like a thick gossamer strand, which broke as he pulled the wand away from it and fell gracefully into the pensive, where it swirled silvery white, neither gas nor liquid. Twice more, Snape raised the wand to his temple and deposited the silvery substance into the stone basin. Then, without offering any explanation of this behavior, he picked up the pensive carefully, removed it to a shelf out of their way, and returned to face Potter with his wand held at the ready. Stand up and take out your wand, Potter. Harry got to his feet, feeling nervous. They faced each other with the desk in between them. You may want to use your wand to attempt to disarm me, or defend yourself in any other way that you can think of. You may do so, said Snape. And what are you going to do? Harry asked, eyeing Snape's wand apprehensively. I am going to attempt to break into your mind," said Snape softly. We're going to see how well you resist. I've been told that you're already 
that you have already shown aptitude at resisting the imperious curse. You will find that similar powers are needed for this. Brace yourselves now, Legilimens! Snape had struck before Harry was ready, before he had even begun to summon any force of resistance. The office swam in front of his eyes and vanished. Image after image was racing through his mind like a flickering film, so vivid it blinded him to his surroundings. He was five, watching Dudley riding a new red bicycle, and his heart was bursting with jealousy. He was nine, and Ripper the Bulldog was chasing him up a tree, and the Dursleys were laughing below on the lawn. He was sitting under the sorting hat, and it was telling him he would do well in Slytherin. Hermione was lying in the hospital wing, her face covered with thin black hair. A hundred Dementors were closing in on him beside the dark lake. Cho Chang was drawing nearer to him under the mistletoe. No, said a voice inside Harry's head, as the memory of Cho drew nearer. You're not watching that. You're not watching it. It's private. He felt a sharp pain in his knee. Snape's office had come back into view, and he realized he had fallen to the floor. One of his knees had collided painfully with the leg of Snape's desk. He looked up at Snape, who had lowered his wand and was rubbing his wrist. There was an angry wheel there, like a scorch mark. "'Did you mean to produce a stinging hex?' asked Snape coolly. "'No,' said Harry bitterly, getting up from the floor. "'I thought not,' said Snape, watching him closely. "'You let me get in too far. You lost control.' "'Did you see everything that I saw?' Harry asked, unsure whether he wanted to hear the answer. "'Flashes of it,' said Snape his lip curling. To whom did the dog belong? My Aunt Marge, Harry muttered, hating Snape. Well, for a first attempt, that was not as poor as it might have been, said Snape, raising his wand once more. You did manage to stop me eventually, though you wasted time and energy shouting. You must remain focused. Repel me with your brain, and you will not need to resort to your wand. I'm trying, said Harry angrily, but you're not telling me how. Manners, Potter, said Snape dangerously. Now, I want you to close your eyes. Harry threw him a filthy look before doing what he was told. He didn't like the idea of standing there with his eyes shut while Snape faced him, carrying a wand. Clear your mind, Potter said Snape's cold voice. Let go of all emotion. But Harry's anger at Snape continued to pound through his veins like venom. Let go of his anger? He could have easily detached his legs. You're not doing it, Potter. You will need more focus and discipline than this. Now. Harry tried to empty his mind. Tried not to think or remember or feel. Let's go on the count of three, once again. One, two, three, Legilimens! A great black dragon was rearing in front of him. His mother and father were waving to him out of an enchanted mirror. Cedric Diggory was lying on the ground with blank eyes staring at him. Oh! 
Harry was on his knees again, his face buried in his hands, his brain aching as though someone had been trying to pull it from his skull. Get up, said Snape sharply. Get up. You're not trying. You're making no effort. You are allowing me to access the memories that you fear, handing me your weapons. Harry stood up again, his heart thumping wildly as though he had really just seen Cedric dead in the graveyard. Snape looked even paler than usual, and angrier, though not nearly as angry as Harry was. I am making an effort, he said through clenched teeth. I told you to empty yourself of emotion. Yeah, well, I'm finding that hard at the moment, Harry snarled. Then you will be easy prey for the Dark Lord, said Snape savagely. Fools who wear their hearts proudly on their sleeves, who cannot control their emotions, who wallow in sad memories and allow themselves to be provoked so easily. Weak people, in other words. They stand no chance against his powers. He will penetrate your mind with absurd ease, Potter. I'm not weak, said Harry in a low voice, fury now pumping through him so that he thought he might attack Snape in a moment. Then prove it. Master yourself, bat Snape. Control your anger. Discipline your mind. We shall try it again. Get ready now, legilimens. He was watching Uncle Vernon hammering the letterbox shut. A hundred Dementors were drifting across the lake on the grounds toward him. He was running along a windowless passage with Mr. Weasley. They were drawing nearer to the plain black door at the end of the corridor. Harry expected to go through it, but Mr. Weasley led him off to the left, down a flight of stone steps. I know! I know! He was on all fours again on Snape's office floor. His scar was prickling unpleasantly, but the voice that had just issued from his mouth was triumphant. He pushed himself up again to find Snape staring at him, his wand raised. It looked as though, this time, Snape had lifted the spell before Harry had even tried to fight back. What happened then, Potter? He asked, eyeing Harry intently. I saw. I remembered, Harry panted. I've just realized. Realized what? Asked Snape sharply. Harry did not answer at once. He was still savoring the moment of blinding realization as he rubbed his forehead. He had been dreaming about a windowless corridor ending in a locked door for months, without once realizing that it was a real place. Now, seeing the memory again, he knew that all along he had been dreaming about the corridor down which he had run with Mr. Weasley on the 12th of August, as they hurried to the courtrooms in the Ministry. It was the corridor leading to the Department of Mysteries, and Mr. Weasley had been there on the night that he had been attacked by Voldemort's snake. He looked up at Snape. What's in the Department of Mysteries? What did you say? Snape asked quietly, and Harry saw with deep satisfaction that Snape was unnerved. I said, What's in the Department of Mysteries, sir? Harry said. And why? said Snape slowly. Would you ask such a thing? Because, said Harry, watching Snape's face closely, that corridor I've just seen, I've been dreaming about it for months. I've just recognized it leads to the Department of Mysteries. 
and I think Voldemort wants something from I have told you not to say the Dark Lord's name. They glared at each other. Harry's scar seared again, but he did not care. Snape looked agitated. But when he spoke again, he sounded as though he were trying to appear cool and unconcerned. There are many things in the Department of Mysteries, Potter, few of which you would understand, and none of which concern you. Do I make myself plain? Yes, Harry said, still rubbing, rubbing his prickling scar, which was becoming more painful. I want you back here at the same time on Wednesday. We will continue work then. Fine, said Harry. He was desperate to get out of Snape's office and find Ron and Hermione. You are to rid your mind of emotion every night before sleep. Empty it. Make it blank and calm. Do you understand? Yes, said Harry, who was barely listening. And be warned, Potter. I shall know if you have not practiced. Right, Harry mumbled. He picked up his school bag, swung it over his shoulder, and hurried toward the office door. As he opened it, he glanced back over his shoulder at Snape, who had his back to Harry and was scooping his own thoughts out of the pensive with the tip of his wand and replacing them carefully inside his own head. Harry left without another word, closing the door carefully behind him, his scar still throbbing painfully. Harry found Ron and Hermione in the library, where they were working on Umbridge's most recent ream of homework. Other students, nearly all of them fifth years, sat at lamp-lit tables nearby, noses close to books, quills scratching feverishly, while the sky outside the mullioned windows grew steadily blacker. The only other sound was the slight squeaking of one of Madame Pince's shoes as the librarian prowled the aisles menacingly, breathing down the necks of those touching her precious books. Harry felt shivery. His scar was still aching, he felt almost feverish. When he sat down opposite Ron and Hermione, he caught sight of himself in the window opposite. He was very white, and his scar seemed to be showing up more clearly than usual. How did it go? Hermione whispered, and then, looking concerned, Are you all right, Harry? Yeah, fine. I don't know, said Harry impatiently, wincing with pain as it shot through his scar again. Listen, I've just realized something. And he told them what he had seen and deduced. So, so are you saying, whispered Ron as Madame Pince swept past, squeaking slightly, that the, the weapon, the, the, the thing that you know who's after, it's in the Ministry of Magic? It's in the Department of Mysteries, it's got to be. Harry whispered. I saw that door when your dad took me down to the courtrooms for my hearing, and it's definitely the same one that he was guarding when I saw the snake bit him. Hermione let out a long, slow sigh. <sighs> of course, she breathed. Of course what? said Ron rather impatiently. Ron, think about it. Sturgis Podmore was trying to get through a door at the Ministry of Magic. It must have been that one. It's too much of a coincidence. How come Sturgis was trying to break in when he was on our side? said Ron. Well, I don't know, Hermione admitted. 
that is a bit odd. So what's in the Department of Mysteries? Harry asked Ron. Has your dad ever mentioned anything about it? Well, I know that they call the people who work in there unspeakables, said Ron, frowning, because no one really seems to know what they do. Weird place to have a weapon. It's not weird at all. It makes perfect sense, said Hermione. It will be something top secret that the Ministry's been developing, I expect. Harry, are you sure that you're right? For Harry had just run both of his hands hard over his forehead as though trying to iron it. Yeah, fine, he said, lowering his hands, which were trembling. I just feel a bit... I don't like occlumency much. I expect anyone would feel shaky if they've just had their mind attacked over and over again, said Hermione sympathetically. Look, let's get back to the common room. It'll be a, a bit more comfortable there. But the common room was packed and full of shrieks of laughter and excitement. Fred and George were demonstrating their latest bits of joke shop merchandise. Headless hats, shouted George as Fred waved a pointed hat decorated in a fluffy pink feather at the watching students. Two galleons each. Watch Fred now. Fred swept the hat onto his head, beaming. For a second, he merely looked rather stupid. Then, both the hat and the head vanished. Several girls screamed, but everyone else was roaring with laughter. And off again, shouted George, and Fred's hand groped for a moment in what seemed to be thin air over his shoulders. Then his head reappeared as he swept the pink-feathered hat from it. How do those hats work, then? said Hermione, distracted from her homework and watching Fred and George closely. I mean, obviously it's some kind of invisibility spell, but it's rather clever to have extended the field of invisibility beyond the bounds of the charmed subject. I imagine that the charm wouldn't have a very long life, though. Harry did not answer. He was feeling ill. I'm going to have to do this tomorrow, he muttered, pushing the books he had just taken out of his bag back inside. Well, write it on your homework planner, then, said Hermione encouragingly, so you don't forget it. Harry and Ron exchanged looks as he reached into his bag, withdrew the planner, and opened it tentatively. "'Don't leave it till later, you big second raider!' chided the book as Harry scribbled down Umbridge's homework. Hermione beamed at it. "'I think I'll go to bed,' said Harry, stuffing the homework planner back into his bag and making a mental note to drop it in the fire the first opportunity he got. He walked across the common room, dodging George, who tried to put a headless hat on him, and reached the peace and cool of the stone staircase to the boys' dormitories. He was feeling sick again, just as he had on the night when the vision of the snake had come, but he thought that if he could just lie down for a while, he would be all right. He opened the door of his dormitory and was one step inside it when he experienced pain so severe he thought someone must have sliced into the top of his head. He didn't know where he was, whether he was standing or lying down. He didn't even know his own name. Maniacal laughter was ringing in his ears. He was happier than he had been in a long time. Jubilant. Ecstatic. Triumphant. A wonderful, wonderful thing had happened. Hurry! Hurry! Someone had hit him around the face. 
The insane laughter was punctuated with a cry of pain. The happiness was draining out of him, but the laughter continued. He opened his eyes, and as he did so, he became aware of the wild laughter coming from his own mouth. The moment he realized this, it died away. Harry lay panting on the floor, staring up at the ceiling, the scar on his forehead throbbing horribly. Ron was bending over him, looking very worried. What happened? I don't know, Harry gasped, sitting up again. He's really happy. Really happy. You know who is? Something good has happened, mumbled Harry. He was shaking as badly as he had done after seeing the snake attack Mr. Weasley, and he felt very sick. Something he's been hoping for. The words came just as they had back in the Gryffindor changing room, as though a stranger were speaking them through Harry's mouth. Yet he knew that they were true. He took deep breaths, willing himself not to vomit all over Ron. He was very glad when Dean and Seamus... Oh, he was very glad that Dean and Seamus were not there to watch this time. Hermione told me to come and check on you, said Ron in a low voice, helping Harry to his feet. She says your defenses will be low at the moment, after Snape's been fiddling around with your mind. Still, I suppose it'll help in the long run, won't it? He looked doubtfully at Harry as he helped him back toward his bed. Harry nodded without any conviction and slumped back on his pillows, aching all over from having fallen to the floor so often that evening, his scar still prickling painfully. He could not help feeling that his first foray into occlumency had weakened his mind's resistance rather than strengthening it, and he wondered, with a feeling of great trepidation, what had happened to make Lord Voldemort the happiest he had been in fourteen years? And that is the end of the chapter. Liberty Grace says, The voice of the planner is great. That's my, uh, that's my sort of high-pitched... Uh, news announcer voice, I suppose. Well, we've learned quite a bit tonight. Quite a bit uh, from uh, an unexpected source, somewhere, somewhere that we usually don't get a lot of uh, clean information from. Usually it's tainted with, uh, you know, great bits of distaste and dislike, which I suppose he continued that trend. But Snape has revealed an awful lot about what's going on. Harry's going to learn more later, but Harry has learned some very important things tonight. First of all, there's a concern that he wasn't, you know, he was, he, he was suspicious. He was anxiety, he, he had some anxiety about the idea that Sna uh, Voldemort could read his mind, but he didn't have any evidence to say that, that it was happening or that it could happen. Now, in spite of, of uh, Snape being rather pedantic about the whole thing, it does seem that mind reading is, in fact, a possibility here. And Harry is uh, potentially weak to this sort of, uh, this sort of mental attack. Yes, yeah, Sarah, I hope you're getting better. By the way, 
I did get a very, very good gift this this uh, Christmas, and I am looking forward to showing it to you. However, I can't uh, post any video right now, so I th and I I want it to be like I don't I don't I don't want to I don't want to undercut this good good thing that I did get. So, um, there is uh, it's on my Instagram if you want to go check it out there. Um, but uh, as far as I can tell, I can still post sort of like pictures and and uh, announcements like that for you guys for right now. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and do that. And you guys can see this good, good gift that I did get. Um, it will debut, uh, I, I promise, the, the moment that I can actually show it off to you guys. Coop says, not a fun time of the year to get sick. But it's been that kind of week here as well. Yeah, it is the season. It is the season for illness, um, especially anybody in uh, childcare of any kind. Um, I hope uh, everyone is staying well to the best of their abilities. Good luck to you all. Liberty Grace says, This makes me curious about natural-born legilimens, like Queenie from Fantastic Beasts. An interesting idea. Yeah, there do seem to be like the occasional wizards, and they they discuss it a lot more. Um, I think in uh, in Fantastic Beasts and beyond, um, wizards who are sort of naturally uh, naturally gifted at a certain type of magic or a certain spell or that sort of thing. And you know, in this, I'm sure I'm sure there's a a goof to be made about Harry's being uh, disarming people, but. Uh, yeah, natural-born legilimens like Queenie. What? <laughs> there must be. Yeah, there must be other people like natural-born Aquamans, um, who uh, just you know try as one might. They're they are an impenetrable fortress, and I, I wonder what uh, you know. <laughs> it seems like they could go into espionage work, but of course, if something's super cool, espionage work is typically my go-to. I very very much wanted to be a spy when I was young. Not anymore, though. I'm done with that life. No. Yeah. No, I'm I I'm done. The spying life is behind me. It is. I didn't wink at you. How dare you? How dare you? I didn't wink. She's She's a spy. She's doing She's doing all sorts of goofs on me right now. See, and now you've got chat turned against me. Liberty Grace says, uh-huh, sure, Sam. And Coop says, now imagining Sam in the Foreign Service. I wanted to be a spy very, very much for a long time. Um, uh, let's see. I started by wanting to be... Oh, let's see. What came first? I don't think spy one at first. I think I wanted to be, um, like when I was really, really young. Adopted. No, that came later. Let's see if I can go through the timeline. I think I just wanted to be a police officer. Yeah, a police officer, firefighter, one of the classic ones. Um, I think there were like two notable iterations. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, but uh, then for a long time, I really wanted to be a spy. I would say basically all the way through elementary school. Um, and uh, in middle school, we took a careers class that really sort of, um, I, I, I sort of decided what I actually wanted to, to really do. But late, later in, um, 
elementary school, late elementary school. I had wanted to be a spy for years. Um, I would play a bunch of paintball and I always like, I always chose the kind of, like I, I built myself a ghillie suit out of, <laughs> out of old burlap and uh, bug netting. Um, I want to note right now, it was a very, very good ghillie suit. Cassidy is telling more lies right now about about whether or not it's breathable. It's made of bug netting. It's perfectly breathable. It's not breathable. It was super breathable, and I'm a genius boy. Fifteen minutes under it. Why were you? When did you? When were you under my ghillie suit? Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot we busted it out for that. <laughs> uh, and Nate is correct. It does not protect against. It does not protect against poison ivy. What's up, General? Yeah, the, uh, the, um, it was a long phase for me wanting to be, wanting to be in the, in the CIA, especially. Um, I essentially, I just latched on to James Bond and, uh, the young James Bond series, which I actually just dug up a, a book that I found on my shelf for that a little bit ago. Um, I really enjoyed, uh, young James Bond. I really enjoyed, there was an, a series called Alex Ryder. Um, which I, I'm going to say looking back was a great series, but I definitely won't claim uh, that it was that it's great in any sense other than sort of nostalgia. Um, kind of tertiary to that, I also really enjoyed, um, what was it called? Artemis Fowl, which I'm pretty sure I just found a new book that I had never seen before uh, from Artemis Fowl. Cass found it. That's right. Cass did find it. Um, Genghis Khan, I see. Coop says one of my one of my proctors at one phase of the foreign service was six four with a facial scar. Okay, so not a spy, but a villain. That's what a that's what a villain looks like. It's been it's been made very clear, Coop. We know exactly what a villain looks like. And it's six four with a facial scar, for sure. But uh yeah, I spent a, a long time <laughs> I spent a long time really wanting to be a spy. Um, I, my, oh boy, oh boy. All right, here we go. When I was a kid, uh, me and my friends around our neighborhood um, started our own version of the OSS, which um, y'all might Outdoor recognize. Uh, huh? Outdoor science school. Outdoor science school. No, it was not that. Not to us, it wasn't. Um, Rootin' Tootin', no, we're only doing the one chapter tonight. This is uh, one of those great, great uh, scream-go-wonky kind of uh, nights, and so I'm, I'm doing what I can to, to wrestle with it, but uh, only the one chapter for tonight. Um, but yeah, me and my friends, um, the OSS, I believe, was the name of the sort of espionage organization from Spy Kids, which I enjoyed quite a bit too. I was big on gadgets, loved gadgets. I would ask for, um, there was a, a company called, I think it was called Wild Planet, that would make um, spy gadgets that did work very, very poorly. They were very bad, very, very bad toys, very bad gadgets. But uh, they looked cool. They looked right. Um, I had a little. I had a little. Um, uh, <laughs> A little thing it looked like a tiny like fold-up pistol um but it had a microphone on it so you could hear with with uh earbuds you could hear conversations from quote unquote far away no you couldn't uh but later on i did have a uh a dream of like getting a big like takeout salad bowl from olive garden and turning it into a big 
dish that would in fact collect sounds and then sort of routing that toward the microphone because it was in a shape that could work for that. Yeah. Um, uh, I had a set of motion sensors that did not work. Not one time did they ever work. Um, there was some real horse hockey. I used those to virtually no effect, but yeah, me and my friends all organized and uh, we had different ranks within the OSS. Um, uh, so yeah, lots of inspiration from like, uh, what was it? Acme Spy, uh, the Acme, Acme Spy Organization, I think it was called. Maybe it was just Acme that made the gadgets. Um, but uh, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? The computer sort of point and click game uh, inspired me a lot. And honestly, it was great because it taught me a lot about, uh, it gave me a big foundation for my, my learning in history and geography and, and culture, that sort of stuff. But uh, all that to say, I spent a long time, I spent years and years wanting to be a spy. Uh, I took it very seriously. And then I got the, I believe it was the uh, eyewitness books, if any of y'all have seen those. Um, they are essentially these big picture books that, um, they're really, really well done. It's some great sort of photojournalism stuff, but uh, they, they, uh, they had a, an espionage eyewitness book. And in it was depicted a, a spy that had been hung. I believe it was Benedict Arnold. Um, before I make a fool of myself, was Benedict Arnold hanged? I think is technically the correct term when you're using, when you're talking about it in terms of the execution. Um, no, apparently not. Uh, I do know it was a Revolutionary War spy, however. Um, and uh, this, this spy had been hanged, and there was a little um, a little illustration of it from back in the day. Debbie, thanks for having in, having you in. What? Thanks for having you in. What? Debbie, good to see you. I hope you have a great night. I don't know why I can't talk. Yes, I do. Um, but uh... <laughs> Coop, <laughs> I won't. Um. Yeah, uh, I, I do think that's probably where, you know, the, the various sources that I saw, the, called it the OSS. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's where it came from, the predecessor to the CIA. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a good time, right up until I saw um, this, uh, this little illustration. I, I think it was like a, a, an etching from, from a, news, a newspaper back, you know, contemporary to the, the Revolutionary War. But... It did show a hanged spy and I realized like, oh, this isn't just about having cool gadgets and traveling all over the world and, and uh, sneaking around and, and <laughs> finding out secrets. Uh, this is serious stuff and probably uh, not the most secure job you could have. And I immediately uh, stepped away. I stepped away from that life. I. I closed that chapter of my life forever. And I don't care if you believe me. You'll just have to trust me. I'm no longer a spy or interested in spying. Watch this pocket watch swing back and forth. All right, y'all. I am... I think I'm going to... Uh, I'm uh, close to wrapping up tonight. 
Ooh, Liberty Grace says, was it Nathan Hale you saw? And I will bet that it was. Hold on a second. Because I'm going to remember, I'm going to remember the illustration when I see it. So let's Google <laughs> Nathan Hale hanged. Um, I don't know. I don't see the one that I saw. I don't see the illustration that I saw. But um, yeah, I think it's probably sensible to say it was likely Nathan Hale. So yeah, Nathan Hale uh, did rescue me from from a life of of terror and uh, and fear. Okay. Now I feel like beans are kind of a visual thing, but you know what? Y'all are here. Y'all deserve it. If it's beans time, it's beans time. I have to summon my assistant. Yep, there's Miss Frizzle. I, man, you're creepy, <laughs> Miss Frizzle. Because I don't even see you. I don't even see you in the audio channel, and you just appear at the moment somebody mentions the beans. <laughs> Creep, creeping me out. I gotta go get her. That was probably a pretty jarring way to come back to it. Because <laughs> you can't hear what. Yeah, you can't hear what's in here. But it caught me right at the first. The uh, the like it cut off maybe a quarter of that gasp, and so what they just heard was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, Miss Frizzle is being characteristically creepy. She's not even in the audio channel right now. But the moment I mentioned beans, she's like, "Yeet beans times." <laughs> yeah. All right. So, it's beans time. Um, I've got my hat, and y'all are just going to have to trust me, frankly, that I'm not looking. Um, but we're shooting for, uh, I mean, you can. It's, it's, there's a recording up there. Um, yeah, just in case. Okay. Shooting for five beans tonight, and I'm shooting for five out of five on the flavors. Of course, I have gotten goosed before. Oh, boy, I don't have any water. This is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> All right. I, I'm ready. I can hear the characteristic click. I don't. Hmm. I'm going to turn it into a tank. You're a raccoon. I'm a, I'm a bit of a raccoon. I've been... Digging through our trash. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know... I thought it was a sign. I thought you would put it in my trash instead of the bathroom trash specifically so that I would see it. I don't know why I put it there. <laughs> but uh, for those of you who don't know, I really enjoy uh, tabletop RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons. Oh boy, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but specifically, like I like sci-fi ones a lot. And uh, I'm making some terrain stuff. I'll post some pictures in um, in uh, Discord and Instagram. I'll post them on Instagram. Instagram is the, the spot for it. Okay. So this one was pretty good. I'm going marshmallow, I think. Don't wait, 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 wait. Before I commit to it. Oh. Do you want to describe the bean to chat before I taste and guess, Cass? <laughs> I think that's probably true. Yeah. 